welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is sponsored by EvoFem Biosciences, NASDAQ EVFM, a female-forward company revolutionizing women's healthcare and game-changing products that address unmet needs in women's sexual and reproductive health. Learn more at evofem.com. Today, we hear my interview with Dr. Eric Dye, co-founder and CEO of Bloom Life. Bloom Life is a wearable designed for prenatal care. Here are some staggering and super sad facts for you about maternal health in America. Maternal mortality and morbidity rates in the United States are rising. Women are now twice as likely to die during the perinatal period as their own mothers. What's worse is that 60% of these pregnancy-related deaths are preventable. It's not just the mother's life at risk either, but the unborn babies too. Preterm births remain the number one killer of children under age of five, with one in ten babies born in the United States preterm. This is clearly unacceptable, and so I'm so grateful we have innovators like Eric working on Bloom Life. At the center of Bloom Life Solution is a prenatal wearable that tracks critical health parameters of maternal and fetal health. By addressing modifiable risk factors, detecting abnormalities, and predicting adverse events, the company aims to ensure that every family gets a healthy start. Dr. Eric Dye is a biomedical engineer turned business development manager turned entrepreneur specializing in applications of mobile and wearable technologies to health and wellness. He was a great guest. Enjoy the show. Hey, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hello, Brittany. Wonderful to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm excited to have you. How are you uh, doing out there in San Francisco? Are you in a like a fire safe box right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the, uh, what do they call that? That's the, the, the panic room. The panic, the panic room. <laughs> In San Francisco, keeping safe from the, uh, the the virus and the fires and the and the and the, and the riots. Uh, so oh yeah, I'm, I'm 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 good. I'm safe. I'm sound. Yeah. I'm I'm in a a sound isolation booth. I could be in a game show right now. <laughs> yeah, or a horror movie, right? Or a horror movie. <laughs> you could pick, right? Or maybe we'll just blend the two genres together. Yeah. Well, I'm in my panic room too, my dining room, because uh, Hurricane Laura is coming. So uh, right. we're all just from all the sides, all the sides. Let's just talk about Fantastic. women's health and wellness, and uh, just forget about the world. That's what I love to do. I'm in. You know. <laughs> Well, you know, our listeners love to learn about our guests, not just what they're currently working on, but where are you from? What did you study? And then how did you end up here? So give us some background about who Eric is. Sure. Um, so um, I am originally from the East Coast. Um, so I was uh, born in New York City, raised in Pennsylvania, um, right on the border of Jersey. Um, both my parents worked in healthcare. Uh, my dad was a general surgeon. My mom was an ER nurse. Um I uh, studied um, bioengineering at Cornell as an undergrad. Um, after four years in upstate New York, um, beelined it out to California, as anyone who lives in upstate New York might be trying to get out of upstate New York from a weather perspective. Um, I did a PhD at UCLA in biomedical engineering, um, studying um, what's called MEMS, so microelectromechanical systems, these little kind of devices, little micro machines, if you will, made out of silicon. Um, Graduated uh, uh, in 2008 when the world was collapsing. Um, figured I could either, you know, sell oranges on the side of the road or work as a bartender with my PhD or, um, <laughs> or go do a postdoc. So I moved to Europe um, and worked at a company called IMEC. Hmm. Um, it's a Belgian based company, um, really interesting uh, uh, center. It's, a, it's an advanced RD center. Um, they made their name in the semiconductor space, enabling Moore's Law. Um, but um, developed a lot of application-focused research um, in a number of t- different areas, and, and I worked in their healthcare business line. 
um, uh, you know, and their healthcare business lines spanned everything from um, point of care diagnostics, next gen sequencing, which I'm sure you'd appreciate, mm -hmm. um, all the way through mobile health and, and remote patient monitoring. Um, eventually switched into business development um, and got out of the pure scientific domain and more in kind of the business and the relationship side. Um, eventually moved to San Francisco, uh, where I currently live, and um, yeah, got really interested in healthcare, um, the convergence of consumer medical markets, the technology that would enable delivery of future prenatal care. And um, it was while working um, in this development that I met my co-founder. Uh, we had a bunch of ideas of what businesses we may or may not want to start. Um, and from there was birthed Bloom Life. And here we are a short five years later. Cool. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I really love how you said, you know, I took my PhD engineering medical background and then merged it with business because I, I truly think that's the future of healthcare, right? Like the future of healthcare is no longer just here's a therapeutic drug that some scientists made and some doctor is going to administer. It's, you know, uh, patients are taking their health into their own hands. They're at home testing themselves and they are bringing data to their doctor via Skype or in person, you know? And so I do think that like involving the, like the patient and like their lifestyle and just consumer buy-in to their own health is like, I mean, it's, it's like, Fitbit started it, right? Like, hey, track yeah. yourself, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's really, um, and that's kind of one of the insights that we had. Um, you know, the, the company I was at, they had been developing advanced wearable technologies from even before Fitbit existed. They were developing the underlying sensors that go into Fitbits mm -hmm. that were really designed to power next-gen wearable devices. And they were really just way ahead of the market. They, I mean, they had the, they had the basis watch for anyone who's old school in the wearable space. You know, they had the basis watch before basis existed. They had the iRhythm patch before iRhythm existed. They had these EEG headsets before, like, the companies that are now have been working in this space existed. And they were trying to sell into these large corporations that are slow movers, right? They uh, were like, what's this wearable space, remote yeah. patient monitoring, when really all the action was in startups. And um, while I was leading business development for them um, here in the U.S., um, I found that we were, had these underlying technologies and I was going and building business partnerships um, to license these technologies through joint development projects with, you know, a medical device company and then turning around and taking the exact same technology and licensing it out to a consumer electronics company. Mm -hmm. And that for me kind of like stuck in my head. It's like, okay, this is two very different markets yeah. using the exact same technology. And ultimately what that meant to us is that there is nothing that really separates at a, at a, at a technology level, a consumer product from a, from a medical device anymore. Mm -hmm. These are the same. And the only difference is the population you're serving, the customer you're serving, um, the amount of validation and regulatory process you may need to go through these things. Um, but ultimately, it's the same technology. Yeah. And, and the, the profound thing that stuck with us is that there, these worlds are converging. Consumer medical are converging. And what that meant is that a consumer product or product designed for a quote-unquote consumer can capture medically relevant data, which mm -hmm. would ra rapidly accelerate discovery, innovation, and, and bring new insights into areas that have been largely understudied. I freaking love it. Yes, totally. Um, and, you know, for our listeners, uh, some of you are early-stage founders, and you may be in a situation that I see oftentimes, which is a founder has a product that technically can be sold to a consumer, but can also be used by a doctor, um, and what they're trying, this founder is doing is trying to target both at the same time, and a lot of investors say, don't do that. You need to pick one. You got to either go to consumer or you got to go the medical route, and it's hard because a lot of times it actually requires both, Right. It requires yeah. the at-home wearable technology to transmit data to the medical record for the doctor to observe, right? And so that it's really tricky, and I, I'm interested to see how investors might change their mind as some people succeed in creating a consumer wearable and having doctors involved. You know, investors may see like, okay, well, you're going to have to do both. I guess I won't make you pick, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is, I mean, what you're, <laughs> I'm laughing because 
it sounds like the conversation that we've had early on and continue. continue <laughs> See, okay. I didn't um, even know that. I knew it though. Yeah, That's what they it, all it, have. It, it, it is hard. <laughs> and, and, and I think if I, if I am, and I advise a couple companies in this space, I think it's, um, I think you have, um, I think you have various stakeholders if you're working in healthcare and developing the kind of technology that we develop, right? Any kind of remote monitoring tool, inevitably one of the stakeholders is going to be the patient or actually in any aspect of healthcare, one of the stakeholders, the patient, and then, the, the role that they may play might be elevated or de or de or de-escalated depending upon you know various business models. But I think the question really comes down to for me is as I'm kind of advising folks is is what do you actually want to do with this product, right? Like what do you what is it intended to do? Um, depending upon what it's intended to do, how involved does that doctor need to be? Mm -hmm. And is that doctor is that they already want to have this information or they bought into that or are you kind of trying oh. to like plow new ground with them? Yeah. And that kind of directly impacts some of the regulatory aspects, right? And that will inevitably impact some of the business model aspects of who really is the person who's supposed to pay for this. Yeah. And I think the one thing that we've learned is that, you know, it's 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 easy to, to go direct to patient because you could get a sale. If you have a good product, patients will buy it. If you're serving mm -hmm. need for those, they'll buy it. Oftentimes, though, and, and again, we could talk about this within the context of Bloom Life, if you really want to scale something up, oftentimes you need someone else besides the patient to buy it. Yeah. Right? And I think that has been shown pretty true in, in most aspects of mm -hmm. health, aside from like, you know, perhaps consumer kind of gadgets. Um, and, and ultimately to have the impact you may want to have in the world to be able to deliver products to communities that may not be able to afford products, you need someone else to be able to pay for it and prim primarily insurance companies. That's right. Yeah. So for our listeners, when you're creating a startup or a business, you always need to figure out who's paying you. And when you get into healthcare, Sometimes that can be tricky because you can have uh, the consumer, the person, an individual, right? You can have um, the insurance billing it. You can have the doctor actually having to pay out of pocket to have a device in their own office, like an optometrist office or whatever, right? And and then sometimes it's blended. Sometimes I know one medical device, it's for uh, knee rehabilitation. It's not Femtech, but whatever. Their business model is actually that they um, like rent out these braces to people, you know, so it's like a rental. <laughs> so there's like all these different models that you need to, you need to consider. Well, um, obviously you and I could have long philosophical talks about entrepreneurship and technology, but uh, let's get into Bloom Life. What, what is Bloom Life? Sure. So um, Bloom Life, we're, we're a women's health company. Um, and what we've been working on developing um, is really um, the future of prenatal care. Um, you know, when we started the company, we had been working in the connected health space for a while. Um, and we, you know, we saw that there was a lot of sort of challenges in this area. Um, you know, um, access to care. There's over the past several decades, um, there's been an increasing rate of high risk pregnancies. Um, at the same time, access to care is becoming a problem um, in the U.S. as well as in other parts of the world. Um, there's a shortage of OBGYNs in this country, and so 50% of U.S. counties lack any obstetric services, and so women oftentimes have to travel well over an hour to go get basic prenatal care. Um, you know, um, uh, C-section rates are twice the rate of what the World Health Organization recommends, and, and the, really the bigger, the bigger problems in this space um, that oftentimes stem from this increased rate of high-risk pregnancies being um, preterm birth, we just haven't moved the needle in this area. And so, you know, for us, we started evaluating the space and seeing that, um, you know, the way that we deliver prenatal care fundamentally has not changed in over 50 years. You know, it's still based upon spot checks at the doctor's office, um, looking at a subset of known risk factors using antiquated technology, you know, a five minute conversation with the, with the mom and, and she's out the door. And women oftentimes leave these appointments with more questions that come in. Doctors are feeling rushed, pressured, um, are, 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 are lacking tools to really um, meaningfully identify risk and address that risk. Um, and, and, and for us, we saw there was an opportunity to really rethink what prenatal care might look like in the 21st century. Um, you know, by using the tools and technology that have existed in many other areas of medicine and bring them into the, into the prenatal care space um, to, to develop technologies to um, increase access to care for patients, um, empower women with information that might have previously been locked away in, in doctor's office or hospitals, and then through these technologies to start aggregating unique data to really build foundational knowledge over how do we do a better job of stratifying risk, how do we do a better job of, of tailoring care, 
and, and ultimately how do we do a job of, of improving outcomes. And so for us, our, our what we're developing is, is a remote patient monitoring platform. It's show and tell here. So part of it is a device, it's a little sensor like that. It's about the size of a matchbox maybe. And then it connects into a patch. And so we're able to, like that, and so we're able to, and the patch is worn on the belly, and we're able oh. to non-invasively track various physiological signals of maternal fetal health throughout pregnancy. Um, things that are kind of currently used in, practice, in medical practice today, such as contractions and fetal heart rate, as well as maternal health parameters that, that have been shown in scientific research to increase risk or decrease risk of, of adverse birth events. So chronic stress, sleep disorders, um, those kind of things. Uh-huh. And so by looking holistically at maternal and fetal health, you know, we both provide f- feedback to moms and then help care teams over time to be able to identify risk and you know, provide care outside the hospital and, and, and hopefully start to improve outcomes. Oh my gosh. All right. So this thing sticks to the woman's belly and it has this matchbox kind of sensor thing that's hooked on there and it can sense all these different vital signs of the mom and the baby is just having this data actually going to move the needle on maternal mortality and, and C-section? Like how, first of all, I, yeah. Do, does the data move the needle? Do you know that yet? Like, (laughs) so, 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 um, so let's think about this. So, uh, so, uh, how does the data move the needle? Um, so, Let's take a mom, and, and again, we've, we've, we've had, you know, over 12,000 women use the product by now. Um, and so take a mom who's in a rural community that may have a hard time getting into a doctor's appointment. Um, we are able through technology to bring in a way the doctor to her, right? The same kind of appointment that she would have, the same kind of things the doctor could be ch- checking, we can start to measure both through our device and then, of course, pulling in data from other devices. Okay. I mean, we're not, we don't need to measure blood pressure from this device. There's plenty of blood pressure cuffs out there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, but so by, by being able to do things such as a non-stress test outside the hospital, which is where you're trying to assess fetal well-being, you can help the doctor assess, is everything okay with this baby? Mm-hmm. And if they're seeing problematic signs, they can have the mom come in for a more a diagnostic test using like ultrasound. So you okay. elevate care. Um, that's, that's, for instance, one example. Another example could be um, a woman who might be going, having, um, she might be going into preterm labor. Right, and we've had a lot of these cases where you help a mom identify she's having contractions. You help her time these contractions by providing an accurate, objective means of tracking these things. And especially in early um, preterm, in early term, when the mom may not actually know she's contracting because the the strength of the of the uterine contractions are less, mm-hmm. you can provide awareness to her that I'm having more regular contractions. And should contact my care provider, and I should actually get into the hospital so they can intervene to perhaps um, uh, head off an impending preterm birth. And so. Yes, these things can really start to move the needle on outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and our goal is to start building up that clinical evidence to show really specifically in very um, specific clinical use cases how that happens. Yeah. Um, but these are just some some things that, for examples, of, of how this could start to work. Wow. This is super interesting. So you've said you over 12,000 women have, have worn this. Have that's you correct. noticed anything like surprising or, you know, like the data that seems to be the most valuable to doctors or? Yeah. So, so it's, it's, maybe it's helpful to provide um, some, some context. So um, our, our, our North star has always been to um, rethink prenatal care. Um, we, we believe the space is sorely in need of sort of a revisiting, um, you know, for the most part, um, women have kind of been passive carriers of babies um, and not really active participants in their care. And that's kind of by by design in many ways. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when you think about the shortage of care providers that we have, um, if you think about, um, you, you know, providing women with the ability to really better understand and manage things, I think there's, there, she need, there, you need to empower the mom to take a more active role. I feel like the more moms role. want to, though, right? The moms want to. The moms want yes. to be proactive. That's why there's mommy blogs and all these things, right? Because they want to be looking and learning and doing stuff, right? They 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 want to know, yeah. and I think that's something that. Um, and, and by the way, we from what we've seen, all moms want to know. And I think sometimes there's been a there's been the the false perception amongst um, some folks in the clinical community that. Um, not all women want to know or not all women can handle the information. Mm. Um, you know, I think this this particularly pertains to um, high-risk pregnancies where oftentimes doctors don't really talk about the risk of preterm birth because they say we don't want to scare the mom 
or with low resource um, and, and low socioeconomic class communities to say, well, they're not going to understand or, or they, they can't uh, handle this information. From everything we've seen, that's just not true. Yeah, yeah. It's just not true at all. Um, and and by, by making sure the mom has access to tools, has access to information, she could both understand the why behind things, she can understand the what, and she could be a more active participant. She could actually be a contributing part to help manage her care in many ways, offloading that work from her overworked care team. Yeah. And so for us, you know, our, so that's kind of part of what we've been standing for. The other part has really been about how do you advance not just technology, because technology is great. I'm an engineer. I love technology. But how do you advance the, the, the fundamental science behind obstetrics, right? How do you actually build data since in many ways, a lot of obstetric care is not very evidence-based today. And how do you start building those data sets? And so when we started, going back to a point you, you made earlier, we actually started by offering this product direct to patient, mm -hmm. right? And, and it was really a product for mom to better understand what was happening, um, primarily focusing around third trimester, tracking and timing of contractions and monitoring of maternal stress. And it was really a product for her. And she could use, use that information to then kind of further communicate with her care team as needed, but we were not integrated into the electronic medical records mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and what we learned it, from, from these things with all these women is, is we weren't serving the population we thought we were going to serve. So I think anytime you think of a wearable device and technology, you think, you know, high income techie women living in, you know, coastal cities or in the big cities. And we didn't find that. Um, what we found is about over about 45% of our users were from rural communities. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of blew our mind. But in many ways, it kind of makes sense because these are the ones that oftentimes lack tools or have an increased sense of, 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 of uh, they're a little more um, nervous about being far away and want something to provide information for them to make the right decisions. Yeah, definitely. And listeners, one, you know, that's yeah. one of the things you got to think about when you're designing your product and thinking about who your customer is, is that sometimes it's not your paradigm woman, right? And oftentimes, I mean, Bloom Life is doing great and you're, it is, it's a rural woman. So that's something to absolutely be considered. And I love the social impact of that, right? The, these women that don't have access to doctors are, are eager to get the data about their pregnancy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, it, and, and a lot of it comes from, as you get the product out in the world, going and finding out who your users actually are, like going and talking to them, understanding the ones that are having great experiences, talk to the ones that are having difficult experience with the product and learning as much as you can about who they are, what motivated them, what they're looking to get out of the product, what else they would like to see. And yeah, we found that, you know, 45% were rural, were moms in rural communities, um, over 35% were women that were high risk, mm -hmm. um, which kind of speaks to a similar kind of level of concern. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then the other thing we really learned, which was interesting was around really what the data what's behind the data, like, like what you can do with this data. And so part of what we've been aiming to do is build a very large longitudinal physiological data set and start to apply machine learning to this data set to see, can we actually identify signs that will allow us to predict things in pregnancy, such as an impending birth. And so we've made some really great headway in developing digital biomarkers with this, to our knowledge, largest data set in the world on pregnancy, especially on the physio physiology of pregnancy in the third trimester. And that's been incredibly exciting. We've got some pretty cool studies going on with that stuff. Eric, this is really cool. The scientist in me really likes this. <laughs> um, yeah, I figured you'd like to geek out on that Yes, stuff. largest data set. I love it. Um, so, so often we have Femtech founders come on here and they say, you know, um, cervical fluid is really important for fertility. And I say, how and why? And they say, well, actually no one knows. And that's why we're made this med device to figure it out. Or, you know, there it just again and again where they say we we know something is important for women, like prenatal care, important. But when you get down under and you say, okay, well, like what exactly and how and why, it's everyone's like, oh, actually, we never measured it. Like, uh, oops, like we don't actually know. Um, right. So that's what I'm hearing you say is like, yep, prenatal care, really important. No one's monitored it on a daily basis via the mom's belly at home, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and I think we've got some, I think we've got some really good working hypothesis over like how, for instance, how you can move the needle on something like preterm birth. Um, you know, preterm birth is, is a complex disease as many etiologies. And, and, and what our, our sort of hypothesis is, is that if you really want to move the needle, 
you're never going to eliminate preterm birth. Like that, that's like saying, let's eliminate cancer. Like you're never going to eliminate cancer. The question is, how do you actually reduce the impact of someone who develops cancer? How do you catch it earlier? How do you uh -huh. intervene? How do you and so for us, where we look at, if you look holistically at all the known risk factors for preterm birth, can you then take a, create a, a, a care plan that incrementally lowers risk across each one of those facets? And in doing so, lower the overall risk of preterm birth such that like you could delay it so it's late enough that it happens that the impact is much less yes. the cost is much less and so we, we we looked at a lot of the underlying literature around what is known in these conditions around you know preterm birth amongst other areas and see what would you actually want to know what would you want to monitor and then how do we collect that in the most seamless way for the patient and then how do we how would we ultimately integrate that into a clinical workflow so the doctor has things that they can then inform care back to the patient yes. That makes sense to me, walking me through that. Like, here's the experimental design, right? We're going to collect this data and we're never going to like cure preterm birth, but we're going to have the signs and the protocols to like help make it not as terrible. What That's about right. stillbirth and C-sections and maternal mortality? How does collecting yeah. this data going to move the needle on those? Yeah, so so let's start with 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 um. Well, I know it's stillbirth since that's I think the the probably the, the furthest away, and then kind of and, and even just think about maternal mortality. So on some of the mater maternal mortality things, um, the primary the one of the primary reasons for maternal mortality relate to um, hypertensive disorders. Okay. Um, we're not measuring blood pressure with this device to be clear, but we have uh, we can integrate in blood pressure data. Part of what you start to think about is right now, um, if you have a mom who um, either is a high-risk pregnancy, has hypertensive conditions, they might say, okay, well, come in and we're going to measure blood pressure more regularly or take your blood pressure once a week. Why once a week? Why once a week? That doesn't make any sense. If you have the blood pressure cuff, why not measure it daily? Why mm -hmm. not measure it twice a day? And why not be able to use that data to truly understand what is normal for this woman? Because in the way medicine works today, it's all about population level averages. And really mm. what, if you want to have personalized care, you really, you don't want to care about the population level. You really want to look at individual level. Yeah. You really want to probably look at individual, individual level to determine a deviation from that mom's normal line. And so yes. by having a larger data set of looking at base uh, blood pressure, for instance, throughout, you might be able to earlier identify signs that this mom is having going into an increased hypertensive condition, yes. right? Or by having tools that the mom is empowered to manage on her own that really help to elevate when something could be problematic, you could help to flag to the care team sooner than when she gets completely preeclamptic and she's actually like, you know, it, 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 might, it, it might actually have some, some more severe condition that could result in death. You could provide early warning systems with better data. Like, so that's yes. kind of one potential aspect of of the maternal mortality. I love that because I actually run, I have very low blood pressure, which is like pretty dope uh, <laughs> issue to have, right? Low blood pressure uh, in America. But, you know, what happens is that, um, you know, I've had like dental work done or surgeries and, you know, uh, I can see my own blood pressure and they're like, wow, it's really low. And I have to say, like, I know I have low blood pressure. And then they say, you know, oh, it'll jump back up. And then I faint or something. Right. And it's right. like, no, this right. is my normal is, it, you know, like you should be concerned if it's that, that That's low, right. like, you know, because it, it's like there's this paradigm of like, well, the national average is and I'm like, well, that's not my average, you know, like that's this exactly is how right. my body functions. Hmm. That's exactly right. Yep, that's exactly right. And, and, and to kind of continue on your point around, because I think the C-section one's very interesting. Um, Super interested so, in so, this one. Yes, yeah, tell so me. So for reducing the C-section, I think, again, that's, that's an interesting one. So we because we actually have uh, a pretty exciting research project going on um, with um, a researcher out of uh, Oregon Health Science University, Dr. Ellen Tilden, who's, um, who's um, uh, a midwife up there and a, and a, and a professor. Um, the, the, the number one reason for unnecessary C-sections in the United States is what they call a labor dystocia or labor arrest. So they say the mom is in labor and then she stalls out. And so we then intervene. Um, now, the question is like, well, how do they know what normal labor progression looks like? Oh. And so you're, you, you're like the science world. You're, maybe your listeners like the science stuff. So um, uh, there, was a, there was a curve that, that, was, that came out of the University of Columbia uh, from a study in 1950 that determined what normal labor progression looks like. And from this curve, they said, essentially looked at cervical dilation over time during labor. It was 500 women. Now, from a study design standpoint, 
Um, it was 500 white women from the University of Columbia. 80% um, of those people were sedated during pregnancy, <gasps> during labor and delivery. 70 and years there, ago. Yes, 70 years ago. And from there, they said, this is what normal labor progression looks <gasps> like. And if you're too slow, you mean you stalled out, therefore we should intervene. As you can imagine from a study design, this is not good. Oh my good. gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so part of what we're collecting is, again, first of its kind data to determine what is actual normal labor progression looks yes. like. Can we actually identify different patterns of coordination of uterine muscle that indicate the different staging of labor? And from an infra, and that's just like when you're in the hospital. And then as you think about it being at, uh, from home, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research, and, and Ellen Tilden has done some of this, that looks at timing of admissions when you're in labor as it's related to unnecessary interventions. Mm -hmm. And again, there's some pretty good evidence that shows that if you go in too early in the latent stage of labor rather than active labor, you have a higher prevalence of C-sections. Oh. There's a lot of reasons to that. And so part of what we're hoping to be able to do is allow women to confidently and comfortably labor from home longer, having a tool that not only helps them understand how the labor is progressing, but can share that information back to the care team, including potentially in adding in some fetal monitoring components. Wow. Everyone feels comfortable that the mom and baby are safe. She could stay home longer. And eventually once she transitions into active labor, then she could come in and have a, hopefully a smoother kind of ride in the hospital. This is crazy. Um, does any, okay. So I guess it's you, you're planning on rewriting the model, right? Cause you're the one tracking this new data. I'm assuming you're going to publish on it, you know? That's right. Um, That's right. Uh, do the women wear this monitor on their belly while they give birth so that you're tracking it all the way through? Yeah, and the protocol that we're running with uh, with uh, with Ellen, yeah, so she'll wear it kind of oh. uh, you know regularly throughout the third trimester, and then when she goes into labor, certainly wearing the product during labor and all the way through delivery, with the idea that you know the the way the product works is so the the current technology for monitoring pregnancy is a device called a cardiotocogram. It's the big belts they wrap around that everyone hates because they're uncomfortable. They're like hockey pucks, and they wrap belts around you. You have to be strapped down to like a bed. Um, that device uses <laughs> ultrasound to measure fetal heart rate and then a pressure probe on the abdomen to measure contractions. It was a device developed in the 50s, has not fundamentally changed in, again, seven Jesus. years. Jesus, apparently we just studied pregnancy in the 50s. We were like, cool, all right, we're good to go. <laughs> yeah, like, we, yeah we got it. We're we good. didn't even know what, like, genetic um, material was. We still thought DNA was, like, protein, so at that point, yeah, like, yeah. oh, my God. So, okay, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I just... Sure. Yeah, no, we, so we measure electrical activity. Uh, and so we measure the electrical activity of, of the uterus, which is a muscle, the baby's heart, which is a muscle, and the mom's heart, which is, again, a muscle. And each one of these creates a unique electrical signal, which electrodes, mm. these are little electrodes back here, on the back of our patch could pick up. And so beyond measuring something like contraction frequency, which is what the pressure probe, probe picks up, we actually measure the coordination of the uterine muscle. Mm. So it's kind of like the difference between taking your pulse and like, oh, my, my pulses, you know, 70 beats per minute versus like getting an EKG, which looks at the actual firing of the various parts of your. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Um, so, so the point being, we just get a lot more rich information with our device, which allows us to do things current technology cannot do. What is the, are C-sections bad for women and babies? Uh, when, so C-sections can be life-saving to be clear. Like sometimes C-sections are totally warranted. Sometimes C-sections are planned because the woman has placental previa and, and, and she can't go into labor. Otherwise she risks bleeding out. Um, but the evidence is pretty clear that unnecessary C-sections are not ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, and perhaps not so surprisingly, right? I mean, nature's kind of figured out that this is the best way to deliver babies. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, um, um, Having an unnecessary C-section increased risk of, of maternal morbidity, um, either due to infection, um, injury. Um, it has a higher incidence of, of some sort of fetal um, injuring the fetus, right? It's, you're having major abdominal surgery. Um, there's also increased uh, cost. There's in increased recovery time. So, yeah, it's not, it's not ideal to have a high level of C-section rates. It's part of the reason why even ACOG um, and the payers have started shifting towards different um different models to to try to encourage the reduction of unnecessary c-sections it's it's a it's a it's a big problem not just in the u.s but in many other parts of the world as well mm, um i think okay. in like brazil the c-section rate is close to 50 percent like wow. it's a pretty big problem in many parts of the world wow 
Yeah, that reminds me of like how doctors just prescribe antibiotics every time you have a runny nose. They're just like, here, take this pill. Feel better, even though you have a virus, not a bacterial infection. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. um what was the next question I was going to ask you is going to be, oh, so, you know, America has horrible rates of maternal mortality and preterm birth. Um, do you have a guess as to why America is horrible compared to other developed countries? Um, and yeah. how, how is your yeah. device going to, I mean, I now understand how it's going to help move the needle, but like, based on America's specific issues, is your device going to address them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, the, the situation in the U S is, is pretty, um, is pretty severe. Um, U S ranks, if not last then near last of all industrialized nations and in birth outcomes. Um, and I think the underlying reasons for that are, are, are kind of varied, right? I mean, as you know, healthcare is a pretty complex area and I think, you know, there's never a silver bullet. Um, I think the underlying reasons if you think about it are, um, our access to care, as I already mentioned, um, if you don't have ready access to prenatal care, then you might be missing important um, visits and screening tests that could help identify risk sooner. Mm -hmm. um, and so 50% of U.S. counties lack basic obstetric services. A lot of women just don't get in um, either when they should or as frequently as they should. And so a lot of risk is, is increased. Um, there's also a lot of um, socioeconomic issues um, and social determinant issues. Um, so the adverse birth events in the U.S. disproportionately affect women of color, um, to mm -hmm. be clear. Uh, and I think if you think about the socioeconomic uh, situation that we're dealing with, there's a lot of underlying reasons whether or not that's 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 kind of poverty, um, you know, homelessness, um, you know, uh, chronic stress. Very, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of problems within there, and, and those are often folks that also have issues accessing care. Right? If I'm in a low resource community. I may have um, I may have other kids. I may live um, uh, far away from the hospital. And sometimes I don't even live far away. But I actually I live I work an hourly job, and I just can't afford to go to my prenatal care appointments, and so they don't. Yeah. Um, another thing that we've seen because we've actually been doing some work with the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, thinking about how do you deploy remote patient monitoring technologies into underserved communities, right? Mm -hmm. To start to close these gaps. And one of the things we've seen, having done a lot of research and talking a lot with um, underserved communities of color is that there's also a big trust gap that exists yeah. oftentimes with, um, with the patient or their provider, is that they don't necessarily trust them, and because they don't trust them, they may not share things, um, they, and they may not go to their appointments. So there's, and, and a lot of times there's valid reasons why they don't trust them based upon their lived experience. And so mm -hmm. for us, I think the way that we start to solve some of these things, because again, we think a lot about this stuff, is, is how do you make prenatal care more accessible to women? period, hard stop. And I think if you increase accessibility, that already is going to start closing those gaps. Um, another aspect when you start to think about accessibility is, again, how do you start to empower women with information and knowledge that help her understand what's going on, help her understand how her health is trending, help her understand the why behind things, so she can actually be an advocate for herself within her own prenatal yes. care, and in many ways change the power dynamics between yes. her and her care provider. And I think that's in many ways what some successful New models of care, such as centering or group prenatal care, have been able to show that if you actually empower the mom, you're 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 giving her more knowledge, you're decreasing potentially stress levels, you're increasing her confidence, and she feels like she has a more active role. And for whatever combination of these things are, it's improving outcomes. And the third thing is just around again having better data. If we have better data, then we hope to be able to show that better data yeah. can lead to other identification of risk. Um, tailoring of care and ultimately improving outcomes. And so I think it's a combination of things where we hope to move the needle, um, but, it, but it is a significant problem that needs to be addressed if we're going to like, you know, make this, you know, make this space better for all. Yes. Eric, thank you so much for what you do <laughs> and being mindful of that. Thank you. That's so yeah. important. Yeah. That's why we have this podcast. Cause not just cause I love talking about women's health and wellness, but it's cause it's a really, really overlooked area where women are literally dying because we're not talking about it. So thank you for what you do. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about fundraising. So you're a male femtech founder. What has your experience been like, you know, talking about women's, you know, healthcare and fundraising? Have you been warmly received? Have you been questioned why you care? Have you, have you got investment? How's that experience been like? Yeah, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, um, I think the questions we got have changed based upon uh, where the overall women's health has been, mm -hmm. health, women's health space has been, 
Um, I think it's changed based upon almost where my own comfort level has been. Um, sharing some of the personal details from my own life um, um, about Bloom Life. And so, you know, when we started, um, you know, we, we, we started the company in 2014. We, we really kind of kicked it off uh, full-time in 2015. And back then, women's health was not a market. There was no such thing as FemTech. Like, there really mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, and I remember a lot of the conversations they had with investors over, like, starting a company in the women's health. They were confused. They are like, women's health is a niche market. If there's no, there's no business there, you should go after a bigger market. Um, which again, dumbfounded me given that women make up 50% of the population. Um, um, and, and I think ultimately, you know, um, you know, I think the, the receptivity has changed. Um, I think obviously there's more interest today than there's ever been in women's health. Mm-hmm. I think there's been some really great work um, from the broader media of shedding light um, on a lot of the massive problems in equ- and inequities in um, maternal health and, and prenatal care and the outcomes around there. This it's just been some great journalism in this area. Um, and I think for me personally, as a, as a, as a male, you know, starting a company in women's health, you know, I, I got interested in this area based upon, um, some personal experiences that I never, I oftentimes never shared because frankly speaking, I think most founder stories are fake. No, I know what you uh, mean. <laughs> they feel very forced and, and mine's not forced, but I also didn't want to, I, I don't know. I just felt like if, I, I don't know. I just felt like I shouldn't. I shouldn't have to share it. it should, my, the, the, the business should stand on its own. But 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 I have learned that it is important to share these things. And so uh, I got interested in the space with um, struggles to start my own family. Um, and my partner and I um, spent seven years trying to start a family. Um, had a lot of miscarriages. Had a, a number of years of kind of failed fertility treatments. And I just got very interested in this area of fertility, pregnancy, early life, this journey that we, many of us, all of us have gone through at some point, many of us will go through as adults and how, when you decide you want to start a family, how this becomes this massive driving force in your life where you will pretty much do anything to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the fact is, is again, there's a lot of things we don't know about this area that I got. And I felt there's a lot of opportunity for us to apply, you know, I make related things and knowledge in this area. And so, as I've grown more comfortable sharing about my own experience, I think folks, especially to be perfectly honest, women that have looked at me with a kind of the side eyes, like, why are you really starting this business? You're yeah. just trying to capitalize it with years. It's like, it really has nothing to do that, nothing to do uh, about that for, for, for me and for us. Um, we just think that there's a huge amount of, of need in this area. We, like you, I think we're big um, advocates of the women's health space in general. Um, and we think that, you know, doing good in, in this area of women's health can have massive long-term. Oh, puppy! There's, massive a, there's a puppy on my lap. <laughs> uh, beyond pregnancy, right? I mean, part of our belief is that if you want to drive widespread health change globally, start with moms. Yes. Um, you know, and that and that the best time to try to drive any kind of change in a woman's life is probably during pregnancy when she's most engaged about her health, when she's most primed for behavior change, when she's doing something perhaps for the first time for something beyond her own self. It's for her, it's for her family and for her child. Yes. Um, and so it's just a very exciting area to design around it. And we've been feel fortunate to have been successful in, 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 in raising some decent capital by bringing really being able to partner with just amazing investors such as Cape capital and re ventures and, and Stardust equity, some really great women's health, investors out mm-hmm. there um that that really care about the same things that we do yeah uh first it's a shame that so many men have mansplained our own bodies to women you know women's bodies to women and so that leads when you say that you care about uteruses and women's bodies uh women unfortunately have this like default like don't try to explain my body to me you know like and so we're on the defensive already and so I can see why why you know you've got that look a lot I'm ready with that look a lot of times as well um but I I'm grateful to hear you have funding that's what we need to be talking about we need to get the articles out we need to talk about it it is you know people are getting funded they are growing and I I love that you were finally you know opening up about your story because um, like it or not, pitching to investors is theatrics. It's about emotion. <laughs> it's about 
this show. It's about putting on a show. And, um, you know, when I had my DNA based dating app, I always let off with like, I'm a hopeless romantic geneticist, you know, because, and they were like, Oh my God. And I always was getting asked like, are you single? Which is absolutely inappropriate (laughs) and has nothing to freaking do with my business model or my go-to-market strategy. But the investors loved it. And I would say, yes, I'm single and I can't wait to find my love using science. Give me your money. And then they did, right? Um, <laughs> and I hate that, but it's the game. And, uh, you know, that's what Femtech Focus is, is empowering founders to do is to know how to play the game because the, what's on the line is women's lives. That's what's on the yeah. line. So um, yeah. if we need to take a little bit of acting class, whatever, whatever we got to do, women's lives are on the line. Um, Eric, I I could talk to you forever. This has been so fun. I do want to ask you two last questions that our lovers, our lovers love. Oh my God. My, uh, our listeners love. Um, the first is, you know, uh, lots of areas in women's health, uh, some are saturated and some no one's working on. So what's an area in women's health that you think still needs innovating? Um, oh man, that's a good question. Um, so if I'm, if I'm, if I'm, looking at starting a company in this area. Um, so people start companies for a lot of reasons. I think at, at some point, if you're taking external money, there's always a need to find an exit for investors. Mm-hmm. I would actually focus on areas that I think are pretty well developed um, in many ways, but that have not accounted for the women women's health aspect of it. And so I would actually think about things like cardiac. Yes. Um, I think it's. I think. I think um, cardiac is obviously is a very, very well and mature developed market, but I think um, there are very few of any companies that I know of that have really started thinking about that space from a women's health lens. Yes. And I know that um, traditionally, um, you know, as companies have developed products and drugs, they have oftentimes looked at women as little men, like just a little <laughs> model as like a little. Yep. Like oh, it's instead of being a six foot. 200 pound person it's a five foot three 125 pound person yep. whatever and and that's not that's just not true right i mean mm-hmm. and, and women have a lot of um there are a harder model to study because of the of their uh, of their cycle right and mm-hmm. the hormones that come into it and i think if I, I would look into that area and see where can you actually address some of the cardiovascular needs of women um thinking about it differently because i think if you're successful there you will find a big, big, big exit from one of the cardiac players because there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. So that's kind of that's what I would suggest. I love that answer. I love it. Yep. Femtech for us is anything that solely, disproportionately, or differently affects women. And there's a lot of cardiac right. diseases that affect more men than women, but when they affect women, it's in a different way. So that's totally. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And the mortality rate can actually be higher because of the way that doctors evaluate and treat women. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. So, and, and again, there's, there's a ready set of buyers. If you crack, if you crack the nut on that one, there's a ready set of buyers for those kind of businesses. Come on, heart people. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, our last question for the interview is, uh, what do you think femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Oh yeah, that's another good one. Um, so, so I think what's needed to be successful, I think we need to have a lot of collaboration to the women's health companies. Um, mm. There's still few and far between of us. It's a pretty small world right now. And I think um, collaborating and not just collaborating, like, Oh, we have a partnership. We're doing business with each other. I mean, collaborating, like sharing, right? Sharing what's working, sharing what's not working, yeah. sharing great investors with each other, sharing great partners with each other. Um, there was a really uh, great event I was at last year called the Women's Health Innovation Summit, and it was it was a totally different dynamic of event than I'd ever been in, primarily because it was like 90% women, mm-hmm. and it was so much more open and collaborative than like a lot of the like regular tech events, which is like, we're dominating the competition, and we're crushing this, we're crushing that, there, were, like, <laughs> yeah. there was a lot of humility, there was a lot of honesty yeah. over what actually they were encouraging and problem, and so I think that's one of them, and I think what comes out of there for me is, is two other things. Um, one of the things, I think the biggest obstacles for women's health companies is the ad networks. The ad networks do not allow a lot of women's health companies to advertise the way they do other products. And that is a huge, huge, huge problem. Google and Facebook block, when you talk about the uterus, you talk yeah. about breasts or vaginas, they block those ads. Yeah. And that cuts you off from the biggest area to find customers and for customers to find you which directly impacts your ability to grow and scale your business, 
which directly impacts your ability to raise capital. Yep. And so I think there needs to be a really concerted effort and collaboration amongst the various industry players to go and get in front of these ad networks and say, you've got to change your policies here. These are not fair. Yes. I think that's something that seriously, seriously move the needle. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is we need to see exits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot more investment in women's health than there's ever been. But mm-hmm. what truly validates the space more than anything is actually exits. Yep. And I think um, we started to see some really good ones, um, some, you know, several hundred million dollar exits mm-hmm. in, in some areas. And I think we need to see more of those. Yep. Um, and, and success begets success. And you're an investor, so you know that. And so I think once you start to see some of these things start to unblock themselves and start, start to see some liquidity events, I think you're going to see a lot more people piling in. Um, and not just at the early stage, but I think at the later stage, which is oftentimes where um, women's health companies have struggled because there's a lot more like seed stage mm-hmm. women's health investors. Mm-hmm. There's still very few late stage kind of growth stage investors that are they're really looking at the space and deploying dollars. Yeah. Eric, I cannot agree more with everything you just suggested. And uh, it gives me validation for all the things I preach on this podcast. <laughs> I'm like, good. Other yeah. people are saying it. Right. Good, good, good. Yeah. Um, keep, keep carrying the torch. <laughs> I will. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate all that you're doing for women's health. And thank you, Brittany, for all the, all you're doing as well, for building the audience, for driving awareness. Um, yeah, look forward to, uh, to talking again sometime soon and hopefully meeting in a post-COVID world. Yes, definitely. Bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Eric Dye on maternal health and his wearable bloom life. My sister Sabrina actually just gave birth to my first nephew, Luca, on November 16th. I was thinking so much about the work that bloom life is doing. Pregnancy and birth is beautiful, but it's also hard and it's scary. I'm so grateful my sister had a healthy pregnancy and delivery, but there were so many women right now that are not having that kind of experience. And we need innovation innovation like Eric's, in order to lead us to save women and babies' lives. Alrighty, Fem fans, if you love our content, then please consider donating to Femtech Focus, which is a nonprofit organization. We still have our Giving Tuesday campaign running through the end of the year. Your contributions go directly to helping us elevate the Femtech industry. You can also support the show by sharing it with a friend, subscribing, and leaving a review. To stay up to date on Femtech news and events, follow us on social at Femtech Focus, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our vibrant virtual virtual community at femtechfocus.org. And until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.